0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know you've got to have a good book in your hands when it's been endorsed by the likes of Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, and Alex McFarland, all of which have given thumbs up to the book written by my next guest. He is Detective J. Warner Wallace. He's written a fascinating new book. It actually takes a look at the whole issue of The Case for Christ, mentioning Lee Strobel. It takes a look at The Case for Christ, Uh, based uniquely on the perspective of a cold case homicide investigator. And boy, you talk about just good reasoning when it comes to understanding how to break down the facts of the claims of Christ and then understand the, the Gospels in such a fashion as to be able to accurately then tell the story to others who have not yet come to the conclusion that we as believers have. It's fascinating. The book is simply called Cold-Cased Christianity. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. And uh, Detective Wallace, great to have you on the program.
2: Well, Craig, thanks for having me. That was a really quite an introduction. I appreciate your kind words.
1: Well, I was thrilled to see a, a number of friends and frequent guests of the program who had, had such kind words to say about your books. I knew we were heading down the, the right direction when we, when we asked you to come on the program. Now, I've got to ask you this, just leading right out the gate here, we, we yeah. approach the whole question of um, the, the historicity, the validity of the claims of Christ, who he was or who he claimed to be, what history tells us to be, what the Bible tells us that he is. But, you know, uh, I've watched uh, one or two detective TV shows in, in my life, and I know that at least at the basics, typically, if we have no victim, we have no crime. So yeah, of kind well. of starting there, walk us through all of this. I know that your approach is unique, not only as a cold case homicide detective, but also when you first began all of this, the approach wasn't as a Christian trying to prove a point, but in fact, you, you approached this initially when you began looking at the claims, claims of Christ as an atheist.
2: Yeah, I did. And and it's true that it it's often said that without a victim you don't have a crime, but but we don't often don't always have uh, the body of the victim in order to to prosecute a crime. so for example, a case I just finished about uh, 6 weeks ago was a no body missing. This uh, man killed his wife and got rid of the body before we ever started to work the case, so we had to prosecute a case without the body. And it is still possible for us to assemble cases. As a matter of fact, when I first started looking at the claims of Christianity, I really did take the perspective of an investigator, because I was, as you said, an atheist until I was about 35. And I was a pretty committed atheist, I would say. And so it was a, it was a transition for me. It, wasn't, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't one of those aha moments. It was a, really a process of digging through the, the New uh, Testament, digging through the Gospels, to see what they were telling me, and if I could trust them as reliable eyewitness accounts.
1: Now, this had to have been one of the more challenging, if not the most challenging, a case of your career as a homicide detective, but particularly a cold case homicide detective, because typically you're dealing with what uh, cases that maybe you've grown cold over the case of a of course of of a number of years to maybe decades. Here we're talking about a case that's grown cold over the course of two thousand years. That makes the yeah. gathering of evidence and and the forensics quite challenging, doesn't it?
2: Right. And what's great about this the comparison here is that I typically work cases that range from about 1979 to about 1988 is the most recent case I've had. So so you're right, they're a couple, you know, a few decades old. But what's interesting about these cases is they typically don't have direct evidence. They don't have any living eyewitnesses who can say, I saw him do it. That's why they're cold. They don't, they don't really benefit from forensic evidence that would make a slam-dunk case. That's why they're cold. But you can assemble the, a very a, a cumulative, powerful, circumstantial case to make in front of a jury. And that's what I try to do in this book is to show how circumstantial cases are assembled and how they can be very powerful. And and this, the case for for what happened in the first century is a similar circumstantial case that can be assembled and be very powerful.
1: So there a lot of the, the methodology that you would employ as a homicide cold case investigator could be utilized here. And I guess at the end of the day, I mean, if we talk about gathering information to draw a conclusion. I mean, look, for example, how do we know that uh, George Washington, for example, was the first president of the United States or that uh, John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln? There's nobody alive today that I can go talk to and say, were you there? Tell us what you saw. There's no empirical evidence of that sort that's available to us. But there are other types of evidence that is available to the investigator that tells us. Uh, pretty conclusively that, yes, indeed, the first president of the United States was named George Washington, and that it was John Wilkes Booth who shot Lincoln. So with that as kind of, the, I guess, the foundation of this notion, give us some of the the initial steps that you took, and I know that there's a, there's a number of, of um, principles that are utilized from a homicide investigation uh, that you employed in this case to begin diving into the claims of Christ.
2: Well, let me I actually got interested in becoming a Christian. I, I was uh, in a church service in which the pastor uh, at least was able to articulate that this Jesus guy is a pretty smart character, and I might be interested in hearing what he has to say, and I was interested only as a, a seeker who was interested in, in an ancient sage for wisdom. I had no interest in entertaining any uh, ideas about God. I was a pretty confirmed atheist. I did not believe God existed. And I was interested in the words of Jesus the same way someone might be interested in the words of Socrates. But the problem, of course, is in order to hear what Jesus had to say, I had to read through the Gospels. I was only interested in the red letters. I bought my first Bible for $6. It was a pew Bible. I didn't really care to go into much more depth. I simply wanted to hear, what does this Jesus guy say? And I spent time reading through the Gospels, and what I initially noticed were some things that I recognized as being characteristic of eyewitness accounts when you have more than one eyewitness of the same event. These are unintended uh, areas of support where one witness will say something, and you'll think, what in the world? How could that have happened that way? He raises more questions than he answers, and the second witness comes along and ad- inadvertently answers many of the questions the first witness raised while also presenting some of his own questions. So the point is, this kind of inadvertent uh, uh, um, support that was offered by the uh, Gospel accounts felt very similar to me to the kinds of inadvertent support i would see mm. when two eyewitnesses see an event
1: now let's pause on that point because all of us that watch everything from perry mason is he still on uh, to uh, you know the white collar and all that know that it is typical when investigators come together that they like to separate the witnesses get them apart from each other so that there can be no collusion of kind of getting their story straight and and then interview them independently let's talk about that aspect as we talk about the parallels of the gospel, what we see there. Also, some of the differences where one account differs from another and does that weaken the argument for the case for Christ. We are visiting today with Detective J. Warner Wallace. He is the author of a new book called Cold Case Christianity, a Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Newly published, and it's been endorsed by kind of a who's who of great apologists of the 21st century. Uh, you know the names. Lee Strobel is in there. Of course, uh, Josh McDowell, our good friend Alex McFarland. And we're here today to talk about the techniques employed by a cold case homicide detective who began at this as he pointed out, as an atheist, he had uh, no, no horse in this race, so to speak. And at the end of his so-called investigation, came to approve of the conclusions we see within the Gospels. We'll take a look at our case as we continue our conversation right after this.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: So if a cold case homicide investigator were to take on the case involving Christ and begin to investigate it as a professional detective would, what would the conclusions be? It was all revealed inside the pages of a new book called Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Detective Jay Warner Wallace is with us today. Uh, We were talking just before the break about the notion that we begin looking at some of the evidence that we have from the eyewitness accounts. Now, one thing we know from many of the detective shows we see out there, uh, Detective Wallace, is that uh, the police and the investigators like to separate all the witnesses so there can be no collusion, no gathering of, uh, of kind of getting their story straight. Why is that done?
2: And sometimes it's not even intentional. Sometimes it's just that you, you've got witnesses that uh, think, well, maybe he saw it better, so they change their story to kind of be in line with what other witnesses they think are more reliable, or that they think they maybe are more intelligent than they are. So it's not always that they're trying to do it you know, in an evil kind of a way, but you're right. I mean, I've had cases where, when I got there an hour after the crime occurred, patrol officers were trying to do the, uh, you know, the witnesses a favor. It was raining. They put all the witnesses in one car. Well, of course, by the time I get there, everyone's saying the same thing. They've kind of consolidated their story. I want a messy variety of stories that appear on the surface to be even contradictory. That's okay. I want that mess because as a detective all sort through it. I don't need um, every person to agree with everybody else in order to, to trust that these are reliable eyewitnesses. There are some times when I, I know these two folks were present, I know they both saw the crime, but as they're standing and talking to me, they seem to be saying two contradictory things. I have to kind of mine through that and figure out why. What is the physical perspective difference? What is there maybe an emotional Perspective, or a, a hist, you know, a kind of a history of each of each witness that leads them to certain conclusions. Maybe they have a familiarity with a, a certain kind of clothing, or maybe they're a gun nut, so they recognize the kind of gun it is. There's lots of reasons why people would see the same event in a slightly different way.
1: So, if we were to get a case where every single eyewitness account came in identical, right? That would immediately raise some suspicion in your mind.
2: It absolutely would, and I think this is one of the areas, that one of the complaints that have been leveled at the Gospels. We have some areas where Mark is being cited by Luke, and it seems to be almost a word by word cut and paste, and those are the areas that people typically say, well, come on, you can't tr- this. He's this. He's just saying the same thing that Mark said. So I think when we see accounts that are, are quite parallel, we, we can begin to get suspicious. Our, our nature kind of leads us in this direction anyway. But for me, I'm looking for something that I can consider to be reliable. I went through a process that I described in the book, in the second part of the book, of trying to determine, and every jury does this, are the witnesses that we've called to the stand, are they to be trusted? Are they trustworthy? Are they reliable? And we have a filter that we encourage jurors to run through the witnesses to see if they actually are reliable. I used that same filter when looking at the gospel accounts, and I try to use the same. I try to provide you with the filter here in the state of California. We have a jury instruction for this. And then actually apply it to the gospels.
1: So as you're looking at the testimony that comes in from the eyewitnesses, in the case here, the, the, the four gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're looking right. for them, what, to agree on the high points and on some of the details that may not necessarily be really key or central to the evidence that you're trying to piece together. You, you kind of either dismiss those or say, look, different people, different perspectives, different viewpoints, that they would come at it. I mean, for example, you would expect Luke as a doctor – to have certain details in there from an analytical standpoint that might go a little bit deeper or come from a different perspective than that of Matthew.
2: Well, and of course, and I would say also you know, Matthew and John appear to be direct eyewitnesses who are writing accounts. Luke is a historian who's kind of gathering information from, uh, it's very different when you gather information from witnesses who are composed and are, are giving you information. You as the gatherer of this information are not as emotionally tied to the event. Your account, your uh, uh, record of this event will be different than the record as presented by an eyewitness. Uh, Mark, I do believe, and this is one of the things that led me to faith, was my forensic statement analysis of the Gospel of Mark, looking at it to see if Peter's fingerprints are really on that Gospel in the way that Papias in the first century described, you know, Mark kind of penning the teaching of of Peter. I looked at that very carefully, and I see a certain amount of urgency, and uh, the nature of Peter seems to be in the nature of that account, and uh, that to me is very interesting because that's what happens in eyewitness accounts. So I look at Luke and I say, he's a little bit different. He's a historian who can step back one level and calmly kind of reiterate what emotional eyewitnesses might say. It's going to be a very different kind of an account. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, one of the things you said earlier is very powerful for me. The idea that, hey, you know, Vince Bugliosi, uh, who was the prosecutor on the Charles Manson case, wrote a book a couple years ago called Divinity of Doubt, where he argued, you can't trust these silly Gospels. They could never be admitted into a court of law. They're hearsay. The original eyewitnesses are not available to us for cross-examination. Well, of course they're not. In no event in history, even much of the trial he would have tried to to try in the 60s, he couldn't do it today because the original eyewitnesses are gone. I mean, if we're going to say that we have to have that kind of standard where we can cross-examine witnesses before we can trust them, then you might as well kiss away any history you thought you ever knew, even about your own family, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. They're not here now to testify about what actually happened. I think given the standard that's available to us for historical record, for historical accounts, the Gospels are as attested as any ancient account. They are really, in many ways, this is why I try to demonstrate in the book, even by court standards today, which I think are too high for history, They are still reliable.
1: Well, otherwise, if you take the DA's approach, then again, we could hardly come up with enough evidence to prove that George Washington was once president of the United States.
2: Absolutely, and it's, but it's not just that. It's just you're, it, you can go back two generations. The minute a living eyewitness is not available for cross examination, you'd have to say you can't trust you. can never know anything, and that's just too high a standard. We we have that high standard, Craig, in, in California and in the United States because we would rather, uh, you know, uh, let a uh, hundred guilty men go than wrongly convict one innocent man. It's an appropriate high standard for what we do in criminal trials. All right. Now, now, with
1: all of that idea, said, we also know from from a a homicide investigator's perspective, uh-huh. that you're looking at more than just the eyewitness account. That, that that helps piece a lot of the picture together. But you're also gathering other types of evidence. Today, we would talk about that in terms of forensics. We would take photographs of the crime scene. We, yeah. would, we would certainly, DNA would play a major role in all of that. Uh, absent that, where do we go? I mean, if we're looking singularly at the Bible, we could still argue at certain degrees that, well, there could be an aspect of this that's kind of conspiratorial? Uh, Where is the extra-biblical accounts? Where is the archaeological or or historical evidence that is extra-biblical in nature that helps give further credence to the accounts or the eyewitnesses that we see in the four Gospels?
2: I think you're absolutely right that every eyewitness account has to be tested. And that's what I tried to do in the second section, provide a template. And that really comes down to four areas we typically test eyewitnesses on the stand. And we test them and ask, were they really there to begin with? Are they making this stuff up? Were, were they, can they be corroborated in some way? Uh, how do we know they're accurate or their testimony hasn't been uh, changed over the years by maybe somebody who came along late in the case after the eyewitness was dead? Or uh, do we know, for example, that they had any bias or any motive that would cause them? So I look at these four areas, and I think these are legitimate questions that we actually encourage, encourage jurors to examine, and we place that template on the Gospels. And we do look at things like the conspiracy. Is it a possible conspiracy? Well, I doubt many people really who uh, talk about conspiracies have ever had to actually investigate one. I do that a lot of the time when we have multiple suspects in a case. And I can tell you I understand what's required for successful conspiracies, and I talk about that in the book, and look at that and say, do we have those elements in place in the lives of the apostles, or is it really uh, very unlikely they could pull off a conspiracy of this, given what we know is necessary for a, a successful conspiracy?
1: All right, let's talk about some of the details. We're going to take a break in a moment, but we we, we touch on this issue of conspiracy. Let's look at this, because it's not the first time this charge has been leveled against the gospel. Look, you had a bunch of guys, all 12 of them hung out together. It was in their best interest to keep this scam going, whether we talk about the aspect of the existence of Christ or this whole notion of the the death-burial and then bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, they, they had a reputation to uphold. They had their own lives at stake. It would behoove them to get their story straight and then keep this conspiracy going. Talk to us about some of the key elements that have to be present for any conspiracy, whether we're talking about this or the assassination of JFK, to hold that conspiracy together and for it to continue to hold uh, uh, some, some degree of reliability for over 2,000 years. Yeah,
2: I think that's a great uh, point to make because I think there's. I think I identified five um, elements that need to be in place for a conspiracy to be successful, and I've seen this all the time when I'm working these conspiracies. Number one, you have to have a small number of conspirators. The smaller the number, the better. If you've got two conspirators, they're much more likely to hang on to their story than say five. Somebody might break in a conspiracy of five. Also, you need number two to have a really thorough and immediate communication. You need to know what your co-conspirator is telling the police. We typically separate these guys immediately and we began to play on that separation. They don't know what he's told me, the first guy's told me, I can go back and if I'm accurate about a piece of information I can offer it to the second guy as though it came from the first guy. And since he doesn't know if it did or not, he's got to decide whether he's going to bite or not. It doesn't take long to break conspiracies down once you've separated the players. They've got to be able to talk to each other. Number three, you need a short time span. The longer you expect someone to hold on to a conspiracy, the harder it is to hold on to it. So a great conspiracy is a conspiracy of two people when as soon as the crime is committed, the first guy kills the Second guy. Now you have a short conspiracy, a short number of people, and it's held for a very short period of time. The, the, the fourth thing is you need to have, uh, you know, if there's a significant relationship between conspirators, if it's a father and a son, it's going to be hard to break that, because nobody wants to give up their own son or their own father. And the, fourth, the fifth thing is that you have to have little or no pressure on the conspirators if you want it to hold. The minute pressure is being applied, a fear of going to jail or the kind of pressure we saw with the disciples, that's when you have a hard time holding on to conspiracy. Now, look at those five elements. Those five elements in the lives of the apostles are all missing. They've got way too many people involved in this conspiracy. they got no way to communicate. Is Thomas giving this up in India? Why should I die for this if my co-conspirators are already giving up the truth about it if I'm lying? So having no communication is huge. Also, they're holding on to it for 60 years. I mean, think about that for a second. That's just a ridiculously long period of time. And finally, you've got, you do have some brother relationships in these apostles, but why would Matthew care uh, for these other uh, you know, 11? Why would he, what's the significant relationship he has with these folks that would cause him to hold on to the lie and risk his own life? And finally, we know from the uh, earliest traditions of the Church, and there are no contrary uh, traditions opposing this, that the apostles died rather than recant what they said they saw. And so they're facing tremendous pressure. They held on to what they believed. I think those four, um, those five elements of successful conspiracies you're looking for are simply missing when you examine the lives and the deaths.
1: And typically, too, isn't there, when there's a conspiracy, there's always something to be gained uh, in the sense that, you know, you, 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 do the, you knock off the big heist. Okay, so you and your, your gang have managed to knock off the Brinks truck and you've split multi-millions of dollars between you. There's some major benefit to which there's there's also some positive pressure toward kind of keeping the story together. What could we point to here that would be the benefit? I mean, you know, outside of going to the core of the truth of the gospel of eternal life, what would benefit any of these men by holding the conspiracy together to the point of death?
2: Well, this is what you talk about in the book, too. I've only seen three motives behind any murder I've ever worked. As a matter of fact, these are the only three motives I've seen behind any crime in the last 25 years. And I actually propose that these are the only three motives behind any sin. They're very simple financial greed, mm-hmm. sexual lust, mm-hmm. pursuit of power. Those three things motivate people to do things they ought not do. Now, if you look at those three motives, when I see a murdered victim, I say, I say to myself, okay. Who is this person come in contact with who benefits in one of these three ways, because that's our killer? That person benefited by their pursuit of power, sexual lust, uh, financial greed. And I look at that as a way to begin an investigation. Look at the apostles. Did they benefit financially from this? Did no. they, you know, have a girlfriend in every town? I mean, did no. they end up? Did they even have the power to stop their own death? This is the thing they lack. They lack substantive motive to do something like this. And although I, uh, having a motive does not mean you're going to become a criminal, I've never met somebody who committed a crime who didn't have the motive. We're going to pause on that point
1: and come back to more of our fascinating conversation today. Uh, With us today is Detective J. Warner Wallace. The book is called Cold Case Christianity. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Compelling stuff. We're going to come back to more of it as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to the conversation here. We're visiting with cold case detective, homicide investigator, Jay Warner Wallace. The book, Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Now, so far in our conversation, Detective Wallace, we have focused almost singularly on the evidence that we've been able to derive from the eyewitness accounts that we see within the Bible within Scripture. What about extra-biblical evidence? Uh, This might be extra-biblical historical accounts or archaeological evidence. Did you take any of that into consideration in your investigation?
2: Yes, absolutely. We have to, I think, at some point, look at whether or not we can corroborate what a witness says. Now, sometimes, if a witness says, for example, oh, I saw the suspect lean across the table and point at the victim, you would say, well, okay, well, if you touch the table, I should be able to go back and find you know fingerprints there. And that fingerprint evidence on the table would at least tend to corroborate what the witness told me. And that's the kind of stuff we're looking at, is here is there's something out there that may not even be able to make the case entirely on its own, but is corrobor- it, it corroborates what the, um, the witness told you to begin with. This is one of the categories that we talk about in one of the chapters in the book. Are there a ways to corroborate? And, of course, looking at an ancient account, we're not going to be able to use DNA for this or fingerprints. We've got to find something that's consistent with the historical record. And so what we do is we look at um, issues of archaeology. We look at issues of, of concurrent first-century statements of non-Christians, uh, of those folks who uh, are, you know, we might call them pagans, but they're just non-Christians who are writing in the first century. And I try to limit myself to just the first-century authors op- And so we're looking for corroboration, both that's external, pointing inward to the account, but also when we're examining an eyewitness, we want to make sure they are are, they corroborate themselves internally. You know, that they provide um, some support internally. But what you're talking about is really the external evidence that we might look at that surrounds an eyewitness to see if it corroborates what he's saying. And I think there is sufficient. Now, now I want to say something up front, though. I mean, sometimes people have a tendency to overstate the archaeological evidence. I think there is robust. Convincing, cumulative, circumstantial, archaeological evidence to support the claims of the New Testament, but do I? I don't think we can support every single episode that's described in the New Testament. That would be silly to make that kind of a claim. And so, of course, I don't make that kind of a claim. But I think that given so do a quick comparison here, I've got a family. I've got six brothers and sisters all raised in the LDS Church. Do you think there's any corroboratory uh, evidence, uh, archaeological evidence, for the claims that are made in the Book of Mormon? There's not a single piece of archaeology that supports a single city location, even a, a single Mormon Book of Mormon name that exists on any inscription in archaeology. There's nothing. Zero. So the amount of robust archaeological evidence for the New Testament, I think, is pretty compelling, given especially when you can compare it to other claims made by uh, religious texts, claim to, to record events at the same period of time.
1: So at the end of the day, it's not one or the other, it's all of it, and it has to be taken in balance. In other words, if you don't find a word-for-word a word or very close facsimile thereof of, of the account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Do- John in extra-biblical documents, that isn't to necessarily say then that somehow that, that uh, dilutes the validity of the account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John.
2: I think if you were to take the, uh, the piece out, the claims that are made by people like Josephus, These folks, if you were to take out what they do describe of this man Jesus, you would find that these descriptions when put together describe a man who lived in Judea, was virtuous, worked wondrous powers and miracles, could predict the future, was called the wise king of the Jews, was accused by Jewish leaders, crucified by Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. The darkness and an earthquake occurred at his crucifixion. He reportedly rose after death. He was believed to be the Messiah. He was called the Christ. He had followers called Christians. Christians in some superstition spread across the nation, probably the resurrection. These are descriptions that are offered not by Christian authors, but by non-believing pagan authors in the first century. When they're put together, you get a pretty accurate description of Jesus that matches that of the Gospels.
1: One of the things that you spend a great deal of time talking about Inside of your book, Cold Case Christianity, maybe you can elaborate the reason why you refer to the chain of custody. Now, this is a terminology that's typically kind of used within the, within the, pardon me, the police department. What exactly yeah. does that mean and why is it important?
2: Well, sometimes you'll have a claim that maybe a piece of evidence that's in the case now was not really actually present at the crime scene. Maybe some detective dropped it into the property bin, you know, years later. Why do we even think this shell casing, let's say, was ever at the crime scene? Well, the only way you know for sure is if you can go back and show that it was photographed there, that it was collected there, signed in, uh, processed through a number of people all the way for 30 years. You've got a chain of custody showing it in and out of the hands of many different people. Well, let's look at the, the claim about Jesus. How do we know that Jesus wasn't originally recorded by John, let's say, as just some itinerant uh, rabbi teaching good things. And over the centuries, the story becomes perverted, changed by some later appearance in the third century of some Christian who wants to make more of Jesus than was really said by John. Well, we can go back and take a look and see, was there a snapshot of Jesus taken in the late first century? Well, you know, John had students, and John taught his students about what he saw, and those students actually wrote their own texts, which are not in the Scriptures. Ignatius and Polycarp are two examples of this. And then Polycarp, and Ignatius had a student named Irenaeus, and Irenaeus had a student named Hippolytus. And you can go on and on and on from one uh, uh, investigator, basically, to the next, and take a look at this snapshot of Jesus along the way in the chain of custody. Does he change? Was he uh, described originally as something much less than he is now? Or is the picture of Jesus the same through all the centuries, the snapshot taken in the chain of custody? As it turns out, the Jesus that most skeptics would deny, the miracle-working Son of God who claimed to be God and rose from the dead, is in the very earliest snapshot in 110 A.D. or so, in the writings of Ignatius and Polycarp, you cannot get away from the version of Jesus that we have in the Gospels today, and we know it's authentic because the chain of custody is still in place.
1: So we don't see the story somehow being added to or elaborated upon in later years. Um, What I did
2: was I took the writings of three, just three, of these early disciples of the first apostles. I took the writings of Ignatius, Polycarp and clement, and i I just took out I mined out of their letters the descriptions of Jesus, and I listed them all for you to take a look at. You tell me then do they does this description of Jesus look like the Jesus we know today as a matter of fact, not only does it look like the Jesus we know today, these folks continue to quote scripture very early in history the same scripture that you and i hold we will recognize the descriptions and the writings of these early church fathers those first century uh, and early second century church fathers they are writing about jesus and he sounds exactly like he does in our bibles the chain of custody is intact
1: and what's curious too is you would expect over time if if swallowing the story so to speak Uh, became increasingly difficult, or there were increasing numbers of skeptics, that those who had some kind of an agenda to promote would come along and try to water things down, wouldn't
2: you? Yeah, and I I do think one of the important things that we did in the book, we tried to make a case for um, early dating the early dating of the Gospels. I think that's very powerful. One of the questions you have to ask any witness is, were you really there to see this, or are you just looking for the attention this is going to bring you, and you're not even a real true eyewitness? So we have to ask the question, are these written early enough to have been written by eyewitnesses? That's the first question. And if you can answer that in the affirmative, then Craig, a lot of the objections of skeptics have a tendency to fall aside, because if we can say these descriptions, were available early enough that people who would have known better could have said, hey, no way, That jesus I know that Jesus. That's not what he did. Well, then we've got a problem. I think we look much more reliable once you realize how early these descriptions were written.
1: We're going to pause on that point, come back to more of our cold case discussion. With us today is Detective J. Warner Wallace. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Cold case Christianity,
0: as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Compelling conversation today with Detective Jay Warner Wallace. The book is called Cold Case Christianity: A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. You spend some time teaching us the ten principles of cold case homicide investigations. And I know we've we've covered a number of them here, but In the remaining ten minutes or so in our conversation today, Detective Wallace, spend some time, if you would, because I think this information in terms of the approach to the investigation is important for everyone listening, both those that are still curious about and investigating, so to speak, for themselves the claims for Christ, as well as for us as believers who are wanting to present these claims to someone else as we're sharing our faith. Just kind of walk us through, if you would, the list.
2: Yeah, I think there's one big takeaway that I hope that people will get from the book, and I think it's probably a service that we can, pr- we can provide to the Christian community. It's the power of circumstantial evidence. So, my, my, so many uh, times when I hear people talk about circumstantial evidence, even when I'm interviewed on Dateline after a big case like this, right, the uh, interviewer will say, well, you know, all you had was circumstantial evidence. I get so tired of that because the, that's all I ever have. I, I've never had a case in which I had any piece of direct Uh, evidence. Typically, direct evidence is going to be somebody who can say to you, like a witness, I saw him do it. Everything else, for the most part, is circumstantial. Even if you think, what about DNA evidence? Well, if the DNA is found on the victim's body and it belongs to the defendant, you might say, that's pretty compelling. Well, what if the defendant tells you, well, no, it's my girlfriend. I've been living with her for two years. I'm with her every day. Now, suddenly, the DNA evidence is not all that compelling. The circumstance changes its power. If he told you I've never met the woman before. Well, now that would be powerful. So, what I want people to understand is that we make cases, and every case I do, every single case I make on a large body of circumstantial pieces of evidence. It's the cumulative circumstantial case, many uh, pieces of evidence that all point to the same conclusion when they're puzzled together. The only reasonable inference is that the person I've got sitting next to me is the person who did the crime. Uh, that's the power. Of cert- as a matter of fact, in California, we have a jury instruction in which judges tell jurors, you are not to look at circumstantial evidence as though it is any less reliable, as though it is any less powerful or meaningful than direct evidence. It has the same value in your decision-making. Hmm. And I'll tell you something, Craig, there are times when I would rather have a circumstantial case than a bunch of eyewitnesses because eyewitnesses can lie to you that's why we took time in the second half of the book to vet the eyewitnesses of the gospel the gospel writers but circumstantial evidence cannot intentionally lie to you You have to infer what the circumstantial evidence means you might be wrong about what you infer but it cannot intentionally try to deceive you
1: and, and is, is it more problematic too both for the the investigator as well as for the da if you're trying to prosecute a case and, and bring it through to trial with a single eyewitness who at some point could break down, who could die, who could lie, who could be bought off, as opposed to a case that's made up of uh, not one single fact alone upon which the case is being uh, prosecuted, but rather a body of evidence, all of the pieces of of the so-called circumstantial evidence together that builds a stronger case in the end, would it not?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The strength of circumstantial cases is are built on the number of pieces of evidence you have. So I, I typically will do a talk around the country where I'll just use eight pieces of circumstantial evidence and I'll slowly build the case against the suspect and by the time I'm at piece four there are many people in the audience who are ready to convict the poor guy on four pieces of circumstantial evidence. Now I, I usually go all the way and present all eight but when I'm doing a case in front of a jury I might have thirty pieces of circumstantial evidence. So the, the, the greater the number of pieces, this is what we tried to do in the book, I think there are a, a, a number of, of a, a lines of evidence that all point to the same conclusion about the gospel writers and I want the reader, to be able to see how these are all connected and all point to the same conclusion. So we spent time providing ten principles of cold case investigations that you can use in any aspect of your life, but in particular, we're going to use these to investigate the Gospels, and the second half of the book simply does that. We investigate the Gospel writers as eyewitnesses and see if they measure up, basically.
1: At the end of the day, as you have taken a look at all of the evidence in this case, we've talked about um, the eyewitness accounts. We've talked about the biblical accounts, we've talked about the historicity, um, the degree to which we can consider that forensics. Um, How many many separate, can you calculate, how many separate independent pieces of, of evidence did you consider in this case?
2: I think we're probably considered in, in, in the dozens of, of pieces of evidence. You'll see I've made diagrams throughout the book. You know, I, I spent the first uh, nine years of my career in the arts. I was a design major and an architecture graduate student before I became a police officer. So I tried to employ those old lost skill sets in diagramming out these, uh, the case for you. So you'll see at the very end how I assemble all of it. You'll see dozens of pieces of evidence that point to these conclusions as a big diagram. But I think in the end, you're very, it's very true, Chris that not every answer, not every question you're going to have in a case is going to be answered by any case. Every case I've ever worked has unanswered questions. And we ask jurors, are you going to have a problem coming to a decision if, if, if there's an unanswered question, if you have just one or two unanswered questions, you know, how did he get the body out of the scene? How did he drive that car and dump it over there? We don't always get the answer to all the questions we have. And if you can't make a decision in that context, well, you can't make a decision about anything in life, because all decisions are made with less than perfect knowledge. Do I think there's sufficient evidence? Yes, because we're not trying to get beyond a possible doubt. We're trying to get beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. And I always say, anything is possible, but not everything is reasonable. And when people object to certain uh, points of the uh, evidence uh, related to the Gospels, They're making possible objections. I'm trying to provide them with reasonable evidence, because the standard is not what's possible, because anything is possible. It's what's reasonable, and that's what we're trying to make a case for here in the book.
1: So you're you're minding the chain of custody. Uh, You want to make sure that you are dealing with feasible, logical conclusions all along the way. Uh, You're applying the ten principles we talked about of cold case homicide investigations. Um, And at the end of the day, as you work through all of this, the reliability of the witnesses, differences in accounts, uh, separation of the witnesses, as we talked about uh, earlier, uh, when you were doing your own personal investigation, not for the book, but but from an atheist standpoint, eventually, what would you say were, were some of the top keys that pushed the case over the top for you?
2: Well, in the end, it's all going to come down to the resurrection. I mean, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, right? In the end, if the resurrection is not true, we're false witnesses. Yes. We, we are believing a lie, and we have no hope in a, a life after death. We have no hope that you know, this is true. So uh, for me, it all came down to having to investigate what is the most, and I did this in the book, what is the most reasonable reasonable conclusion? It's a process that we detectives call abductive reasoning, and we teach this in the book, And we look at, use that principle when looking at the issue of the resurrection. Is the explanation offered by the Gospel writers the most reasonable inference from the evidence that almost anyone would agree on is present in the first century? Are there other better explanations? We look at all the other explanations. So for me, it was a process, but once I became convinced, and here's what it comes down to, Craig, once you're convinced that the accounts are reliable, you're stuck with, the Son of God, who's claiming to be God and arose from the dead. This is not an examination of history that doesn't have a, a real impact. Like C.S. Lewis said, if this is true, it's the most important truth you're ever going to know. This is the kind of truth that changes your life.
1: Sure, because at the end of the day, if you look at this at face value and you say, well, this is just you know a bunch of hogwash, this is some kind of a conspiracy theory amongst the Twelve Disciples or whatever, I think, you know, if they were going to come up with something more preposterous, I mean if you're going to try to sell something isn't one of the first ideas is to is to make it plausible enough that the average will kind of not ask too many deep questions. I mean don't you find that to be true even as you're doing research if if somebody is trying to cover up a murder or their involvement in same aren't they trying to come up with an answer or an alibi that that seems to be plausible enough that hopefully the, piece, the police will just look elsewhere or look beyond?
2: Yeah, every good lie involves some aspect, some uh, aspect
1: of truth. Sure. Um, so okay. if you're that's trying, that's trying to come up truth. with a really good lie here, why would you come up with something as outlandish as born of a virgin in a manger?
2: Yeah, you're right. This is, <laughs> you know? this, is this is a story <laughs> that defies human reason. It
1: certainly does, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and this is why I think one of the reasons we got to say to ourselves either they're absolutely crazy or they're disreporting the truth. That's the that's the the, the challenge I think we have.
1: It indeed is. And of course, none of this can be done successfully, even with all of the techniques that you've employed, without the the impression of the Holy Spirit uh, to bring conviction and and the realization upon one's heart. Uh, And God, of course, as we know, has been doing that for more than 2,000 years. It is an amazing book, and one that if you want to just be able to get a deeper understanding, how often are we as believers, particularly for those that grew up in the church, that have just kind of, well, I've always been a Christian, of course I believe this, but don't really know the reasons why you believe, or you don't always feel that well equipped to give the answer for the hope that lies within. This book will help take you down that road, not only in terms of, I think, deepening your own faith, but as well deepening your own awareness and ability of sharing your faith with others. The book is called Cold Case Christianity. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Detective J. Warner Wallace is its author, and the brand-new book published by our friends over David Cook. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area. You can get it through the usual suspects as well, (laughs) such as Amazon.com. And I understand, too, David, you have a website?
2: Yes, coldcasechristianity.com, but keep it simple.
1: All right, coldcasechristianity.com website, name of the book. I've enjoyed our conversation today, and I hope to talk to you again soon.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Craig. I really appreciate you.
1: Detective J. Warner Wallace, Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels on the web at coldcasechristianity.com.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved.